and welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty, reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. Today's episode is different from the episodes that I've released so far. There's no guest, it's just me speaking into a mic, and it's more of an experiment. So if you find this valuable, please rate and review and let me know that you liked both this podcast episode specifically and other episodes. And if you hated it, email me, charlie at mlengineer.com. I really do want to make this the best possible resource for machine learning practitioners and those looking to apply machine learning in real products. So again, charlie at mlengineer.com. I'm really, really happy to talk to anyone and get their feedback. But anyway, I had some friends ask me what they would be interested in knowing about me and also what some questions that they thought would be of value to our audience. In addition, I'll be going over the standard questions that I ask all of my guests. And the first one of those is, how did you get exposed to computer science and why did you decide to pursue it? And I mentioned a little bit of the story in my episode with Karthik, where in high school, I was on the robotics team, first robotics FRC competition. And that was where I first was exposed to electronics, engineering, and programming. And I never really dove into the programming at that point, but I kind of had an awareness about it. I really wanted to be an electrical engineer at that point. I was also very into Airsoft. For those who don't know what that is, it's kind of similar to paintball in that it's a bunch of teenage boys running around with fake guns trying to shoot each other. The thing that I really liked about Airsoft wasn't actually the running and gunning part of it. It was the tinkering with the Airsoft guns 
and trying to make them better that I really loved. And because a lot of the airsoft guns out there are electric, you have a battery that when you pull the trigger powers a motor, which turns gears in a gearbox, which pulls a piston back. And that compressed air is what propels the BB. Knowing what I knew at the time about electrical engineering, which was very little, to be honest, but enough. I was able to bypass the switch, the physical switch, using a transistor, a powerful MOSFET. By doing that, you are able to use much more powerful motors and batteries than you would be normally. So that means that you can either have a faster firing rate or you can pull back stronger springs, leading to higher velocity and power. And this was done without any sort of programming, just electronics. But eventually I wanted to incorporate a more advanced version of this MOSFET. Because you realize that you don't actually have to use the physical switch anymore. Current doesn't go through it. So you can use any sort of switch, including logic switches. And if you add sensors inside of the gearbox to various parts, you can come up with some really interesting logic that will lead to more reliable, more consistent gearboxes, as well as three-round burst and other sorts of features like that. Not wanting to dive into programming at the time, I did this with entirely logic gates. I struggled for a really long time making the Carnot maps and trying to get it to do what I wanted. Eventually, looking for help on an online forum where they told me that this was something that should just be done with a simple microcontroller and some code. So I picked up an Arduino, and to my surprise, it was easier to get started than I thought, and easier to make the logic do exactly what I wanted. And that was when I realized how powerful programming could really be. And later on in high school, I had an interest in sports betting. Well, not really sports betting, daily fantasy, so FanDuel and DraftKings at the time. And now, if you wanted to do anything on those sites, it's extremely, extremely hard because a lot of those edges have been found and exploited. But back then, those services had just launched, and so there were so many things that people were doing wrong. I started using just Excel at first, gathering stats from... I was doing this in basketball, so from Pro Basketball Reference, they have a free API. was able to pull down that data, put it into Excel, visualize it, and then use the Excel solver to create different tournament lineups. Whether it was luck or skill, I actually managed to make quite a bit of money on this. I tried to replicate that in hockey and baseball, which went disastrously at first. And I decided that I needed to up my game doing this. So I learned Python and dove into data science as much as I could. I took the edX course that was available at the time for data science visualization. 
and was able to eke out an edge in, in baseball, at least for tournament lineups. And this was really, really exciting for me at the time because I just went from the last season having lost tons of money, all the winnings that I had made from basketball to winning very large amounts or rather keeping the money I made in basketball and not losing in baseball. Although I still did lose a small amount in hockey. And so I did this throughout junior to senior year. And towards the end of senior year, I started playing around with more complex analysis techniques, culminating in actually making a neural network to try and make a better predictive model for basketball. I was trying to capture the nonlinear effects of different teammates being on the court at once and how that would interact with players from the other team. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to get it to work, but in the process did learn a lot about machine learning, specifically dealing with overfitting. When I went to college, although I didn't start with a computer science major, I did eventually find my way into that. And pretty much ever since then have made an attempt to get as good as I can in machine learning and software engineering. And this ties in nicely with the next question, which is why machine learning? And to answer that a little bit better, I want to first step back and answer the question, what is a computer program? At the core of it, you're taking data, whether it is your input or whether it is in a database somewhere. You're taking that data and transforming it into some sort of output, whether that output gets piped to standard out or whether it gets put back into a database or emailed to someone for them to use. But either way, you have data, you transform it, and you use that data for something useful. Maybe you can already kind of see where I'm going with this. If we think about what a machine learning algorithm is doing, it is also taking input data, transforming it in some sort of way, and giving you the output. Now, of course, the central difference is that the transformation is learned from the data instead of programmed. And we've seen the tremendous success of machine learning in a wide variety of fields and how it's able to accurately model very, very complex interactions. So what I'm positing here is that in the future, given sufficiently good data and sufficiently good algorithms, that every program would be a machine-learned program. Now, of course, there are domains where it's not possible to collect that amount of data. But for the ones that are, we're able to model them in a 
more accurate way and take into account so many more factors than we could just through normal programming. When you think about it this way, you can just see that in many domains, computer science and machine learning will be the same thing, where all programming will be with the goal of having the machine learn what the rules should be. There's a phrase from originally Mark Andreessen, software is eating the world. I think it's becoming more and more clear that now machine learning is eating the world. And of course, we have many problems associated with that that we have to solve. Bias, transparency, explainability, etc. But by being able to automate all of the things that are currently done by humans that don't require any uniquely human traits or creativity, we're setting the stage for humans to do what they're best at, that creativity, and letting the machines do what they're best at, processing massive amounts of data and giving that information, that output to us so that we can be creative with it. And I know that there's a lot of pushback to this idea. It's a common refrain from the tech utopia types. But you really do have to use history as your base case. Many people are worried about people losing their livelihoods. And if this were a shift that would happen immediately, then I would probably agree with that. But I think it's going to take a lot more time than people originally give it credit for. For example, we've known for many years that self-driving cars are going to be the way of the future. And if you're a driver, I think it would be hard to not be aware of that at this point. And being that it's likely that we won't see the proliferation of self-driving cars for quite a few years, it gives the people whose jobs are disappearing time to adjust. And as long as we have a sufficiently good enough retraining both culture and system, I truly do think that this is a huge step forward for humanity. The next question is, how did I learn machine learning and how would I recommend that someone do it today? And I guess intrinsic to this question is, what were the mistakes that I'd made while doing it? To answer the first part of how I went about doing it, it was almost entirely on my own. My school had a actually pretty popular machine learning course but it had quite high math prerequisites, so I couldn't take them at the start. And instead, just dove into online courses, the Andrew Ng machine learning course, and later on his deep learning AI courses. I also took the 
both stand for, I think they're CS231N and CS224N. And those are the computer vision and NLP deep learning courses that they offer. They have the lecture videos online. And for my learning style, it was extremely important to take those ideas and use them in a practical way instead of just consume the content and do the exercises. What really solidified all of the ideas, the intuitions in my mind was was the application of it to solve a real problem. And that ties in nicely to the next part of the question, which is what would I recommend that people do? I think it's hard to give a prescription for everyone because people learn in very different ways. And there's two parts to that. The first being, in what order should the content be presented? And second, in what way should you consume that content? For me, I learn best when I'm going top down, where I can see the application of it first, know the general steps in broad strokes, and then dive into the details. For others, some people like going, for the case of machine learning, starting at the pure math level, the theory, and then building up to deep learning and using it. And you can see already how, depending on which one is more of your style, you're going to go in completely different directions. For the second part, I learn best by, like I said earlier, applying the concepts immediately instead of merely taking notes from a lecture or uh, watching someone do it. And once you know what your learning style is going to be, it really skyrockets your chance of success because you can make your own curriculum. At this point, there's so many different types of education for machine learning out there for free that no matter what your learning style is, you're going to be able to get that information in the way that is most easily learned for you. Just to shout out some of the great resources that I see out there right now. If you're a kinesthetic learner like I am and prefer top-down, I don't think you can do better than the Fast AI Practical Deep Learning for Coders, both the first and the second part, because it has a high emphasis on using the Jupyter Notebooks and stepping through the code to understand what it's doing as well as starting from the big picture and then in the second course diving into the nitty-gritty details of optimization and the theory and math behind the learning. And then if you have a style that is more conducive to learning from reading textbooks or from traditional university lectures, then of course to learn that content for the first time you should do that. But once you have that base level of knowledge, the question is, how do you get to the next level? And of course, for this, I don't have 
all the answers because I am currently in the process of still building upon that base knowledge. And this will be one of the core themes of the podcast where I try and get the answer to that out of the guests that I bring on. But my current thinking on this is, first of all, keep in mind that my goal is to be applying machine learning to practical problems, not to be doing original research and publishing papers. But either way, I think that the technique to getting better is fairly similar. And that is taking problems and trying to solve them. And that may seem self-evident. And it is. It's simple, but not easy. In fact, it's extremely difficult in many situations. And that's what makes it so valuable to level up. And while doing this, because it is so hard, you will get stuck. You will reach a point where you just don't know what to do next. You can't get to the accuracy that you want. And that's when it's extremely useful to talk to other people who are much smarter than you and can give you ideas of what to pursue next. And it's in this try and solve the problem yourself, talking to other people, getting their ideas, trying that, and then eventually succeeding through cycles of those that you really can start to develop your intuition of where to start when seeing a new problem, how the model does what it does, and what the thinking patterns, for lack of a better term, of the people who are better than you are and how you can use some of those for yourself and in your own projects. And now the last part of this question is, what would I do differently now? The first part of that is I would have a better idea of what I wanted to do in the future and always keep that end in mind. I think I spent too much time chasing the latest state of the art and trying to understand that rather than hammering in the fundamentals and trying to solve new problems with those existing models. That said, it wasn't a gigantic mistake by any means. It gave me quite a good intuition, actually, of how to take parts from different models and bring them together to optimize a very specific benchmark. But it certainly would have been more useful to have that experience of approaching completely new problems, new data sets, and applying existing methods to those. So I probably would have done more Kaggle challenges rather than trying to replicate state-of-the-art research. Although now replicating state-of-the-art research is harder than ever given the size of the models that some of these labs are pumping out. The next thing, and really the biggest thing I think I would do differently, is more of that learning in public. I'm going to be recording an episode with Sean Wang, a Swix, who really popularized this idea. And you'll hear how I did start a blog originally and did do some 
technical blog post around what my projects were, but I quickly got discouraged because I wasn't getting any readers on them or any sort of engagement. And of course, back then, social media wasn't nearly as big as it is now, but I still would have wanted to have a little bit more persistence while doing that than I did. The next question is, what are the most common reasons for people failing or giving up? And the first thing that I see most often is not having a good enough reason for wanting to learn this. I see people starting off and learning it because it's a high value skill and people say that you should do it, but these aren't motivators that are going to bring you across the finish line. You really want to develop within yourself an intrinsic reason for why you want to learn this. You have to find what's interesting about it and cultivate that throughout your journey. And of course, that's not a guarantee that you're going to make it just because you have a good reason to, but it does make it much more likely. And that brings us to the second thing, the second big mistake, which is not knowing your learning style and subsequently not choosing the right materials. When the deep learning textbook came out, I had a lot of guilt about not being able to make my way through it. And it would have been really easy for me to get fully discouraged from machine learning as a whole in that I would think that the material is just so difficult that I'm never going to be able to get through it. But in that case, it just happened to be that the textbook wasn't the way that I was going to be able to learn it best. And I was very effectively able to learn it by applying it. I hammered home this point earlier, but it's just so important. You need to figure out what the best way for you to learn is. And then plan around that instead of beating yourself up. Moving on to a different topic. The question is, why start a podcast? What is the goal? I've always been interested in learning from the experiences of others. I love reading biographies and talking to people who are ahead of me in their careers about what they would have done differently, what they recommend for me, how they made the jumps. And a few different things came together in my life that made this a obvious thing to do. I had re-listened to Naval's excellent podcast where he says that code is the code and media are the new leverage. And at the same time, came across Swix's Learning Public Idea and also Seth Godin had an Akimbo podcasting workshop running. So all four of these things came together and it made sense that this is the, the direction that I should be going in. 
As for what the goal of the podcast is, I want to be talking to the smartest people in the field and figure out what they're doing differently and how we can apply that into our own work. My definition of quality is how many practical tips, insights, best practices that the listener can use in their everyday work. Right now, machine learning is at a place where we have a lot of really, really good models, but not a lot of places that are adding value with them. And so what I really want to do is figure out who has the experience, the tacit knowledge of having solved a real business problem with machine learning. Talk to those people, extract the best practices, the principles of applying deep learning, machine learning, and spread them as widely as possible so that anyone working with machine learning can use it as effectively as possible. To wrap up this episode, like I do with all my guests, I will answer my own rapid fire questions. The first of which is, how do you recharge outside of work? What I used to do was train Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which I am completely obsessed with. But that has been canceled from COVID. So now I am road biking again and making this podcast. Second, what book or books do you most often recommend to other people? The first that comes to mind is Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. He was the last of the great Roman emperors. And this is his personal journal of philosophy, of how he deals with his life and the challenges associated with being the most powerful person in the world. And there's so many takeaways from this book that I think it's a must read for everyone. The other book that I think everyone should read is The One Thing by Gary Keller and Jay Papazan. The more that I go through life, the more I realize how right this book is on nearly everything. So pick it up for sure. Have an open mind and read it again and again and try to apply them as best as possible. Next, what text editor do you use? I use Vim, like I've said in multiple of these episodes. At this point, it's extremely hard to use any other text editor, especially when you're using the key bindings in other programs as well. Next question is, what advice would you give yourself if you went back to when you first started your career? And for me, I will amend this slightly to be when I first started 
in programming. I think I would put a lot less pressure on myself in general. I tied way too much of my self-worth to what was on my resume, essentially. And that led to so much negative affect and at one point to a major burnout of which I didn't really recover for months afterwards. So I think I would have both gone further and had a more enjoyable time of it if I didn't feel so badly about myself every time something didn't go my way. And lastly, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? I think everyone underestimates the role of luck and uncertainty in their lives and doesn't act according to that. When you are in a domain where the uncertainty is explicit, so I'm going to use poker as an example, a lot of the ways that you treat the way you make decisions and evaluate outcomes is different to the way that most people approach their own lives. The first of which is an extreme embracing of process over outcome. In poker, if someone hits a gut shot on the river when you got it all in on the turn with a better hand, you don't think that you made some sort of mistake. If you have the opportunity to get into that situation again, you're going to take it every single time because you have an edge. It just so happened that that specific time, the luck wasn't on your side. And I think this kind of mindset is pretty rare in people when they evaluate the outcomes of their own lives. When bad things happen, they can recognize that there is that uncertainty. But when good things happen, they always end up attributing it to something that they did rather than acknowledging the role of luck. I think that there's a lot of lessons from risk-taking endeavors that we can take and apply in our own lives to try and make better decisions. Like I said at the start of this podcast, this has been an experiment. So if you liked it, if you hated it, let me know. Uh, I really do want to hear your feedback on not just this episode, but the podcast as a whole. Send me who you want on the podcast, what I can do differently to help you get more value out of this. So send all of that to charlie at mlengineered.com. Lastly, depending on the feedback, I might do another one of these in maybe two months or so, or whenever we have a sufficient number of listener questions. So if you have a question, please also send that my way, charlie at mlengineered.com. Thank you so much for listening. It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list. 
where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com. Thank you.